Jesus said, do to others as you would have them do to you. Please pray with me. Dear Father in heaven, we come before you once again this morning asking you to be here in this place with us and we trust that you have kept your promise and are here. May my words be your words and all of our thoughts your thoughts. We ask all of this in Jesus Christ's name. Amen. Please be seated. It is the early 17th century, and a young man is lying in his bed, and he realizes that he doubts the existence of God. And so as a mental exercise, he decides to see what else he can doubt. At first, he figures that he can't doubt the things that he can perceive with his senses, things that he could touch and taste and see and so forth, but then he realizes that his senses have been fooled in the past. He's thought he heard something when he really didn't, or he had been mistaken about what he'd seen. So he realizes that he can doubt even his senses. And so he keeps on doubting, and doubting more and more, and the doubts keep on piling up and piling on top of each other until this young man comes to a conclusion. He decided that there was only one thing he couldn't doubt that he was the one doubting. Somebody, he figured, had to be lying in this room doing the doubting, and that therefore he himself must exist. And he summarized this finding with a phrase you've probably all heard. I think, therefore, I am. Now this phrase was Rene Descartes' most famous contribution to the world, his best known. But of course, I'm not going to talk about his best-known contribution to the world. I'm going to talk about Rene Descartes' second best-known contribution to the world, which, of course, is the Cartesian coordinate plane. You know what I'm talking about, even if you don't know the name. It's that chart in mathematics with the x-axis going up and down and the y-axis going side to side, x and y is opposite. X-axis going side to side, thanks for the criticism. The Y-axis going up and down, you know what I'm talking about. You plot the points on it, you can determine slope, you can draw parabolas, other trigonomic curves, etc. It's at this point that every single one of you is considering running from the room. Because the children don't know what I'm talking about. The adults have forgotten what I'm talking about and the high schoolers know exactly what I'm talking about. So what am I talking about? How did Rene Descartes' Cartesian plane make it into this sermon anyway? The truth is that all of this setup about the x-axis and the y-axis is to get you to visualize this in your head because our lives are organized in the same way. Right? Think of the Cartesian coordinate plane with a one axis going left and right and one axis going up and down. Your life is organized around two axes just like this. We could describe the vertical axis as your relationship with God. From you to God, from God to you, up and down. The horizontal axis is the relationship between you and your neighbor. Side to side. There's a great example of this in what we say at the very beginning of our service each week. What we call 
the summary of the law. We say, hear what our Lord Jesus Christ says. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your mind. This is the first and great commandment. And the second is like it. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. On these two commandments depend all the law and the prophets. Love God, vertical axis. Love your neighbor, horizontal axis. You all back in geometry class now? Trigonometry, I should say. The reason that all of this setup is important is because it's crucial to understand that these axes are not the same thing. There's a distinction between them. They are connected, but they're different. The vertical between you and God, the horizontal between you and your neighbor. And it's understanding this relationship, connected but different, that makes understanding Jesus' words to us this morning anything like possible. I mean, did you hear what Jesus said to you this morning? Love your enemies. Do good to those who hate you. Bless those who curse you. Pray for those who abuse you. If anyone strikes you on the cheek, offer the other also. And from anyone who takes away your coat, do not withhold even your shirt. Give to everyone who begs from you. And if anyone takes away your goods, do not ask for them again. Do to others as you would have them do to you. What are we to do with verses like these? How are we to go out and live In light of them, this is an incredibly radical stance to take in terms of neighbor. To be totally giving. Totally giving. To be totally passive. To be totally loving. To give and give and give and never for a moment expect anything in return. Note that Jesus does not say, do to others so that they will do the same to you. No, he simply says to love as you wish to be loved. Self-motivation is excluded. He's talking about a pure heart. Don't do a good thing because you want to receive a good thing in return. Do a good thing with no expectation. Not even the thought of what it might get for you. This, of course, is what he's cutting at when he teaches about practicing righteousness before others in Matthew chapter 6, which is a verse that we'll read from on Ash Wednesday. He says that when you're doing good, your left hand shouldn't even know what your right hand is doing. Goodness should just flow from you so naturally, so unconsciously that even your two hands don't know what the other is up to. Absolutely no ulterior motive at all. So let us begin to understand these verses about loving your enemy and turning the other cheek and giving without considering anything in return, with understanding this. 
Jesus is here talking about the horizontal. He's talking about how to love your neighbor. But he is not talking about how to love God. Let me be more specific. He's not talking about how to get right with God. See, all too often, we make the mistake of reading verses like these and thinking something like this. In order to get right with God, I have to love my neighbor. And I have to do it in this incredibly radical way. And so we envision sort of the flow of love, right? Love is generated within us, flows out to our neighbors along that horizontal axis. And if it's good enough, if it's pure enough, if it's holy enough, it can unlock that vertical axis and flow up to God. Love generated in us, flows out to our neighbor, and if it's good enough, can unlock that vertical axis between us and God. But this is exactly the opposite of how it really works. In that scheme, everything is dependent upon you and the quality of your love. But consider, for a moment, the story of Joseph and his brothers, which we read the very end of in our reading from Genesis this morning. We don't have time to go into the whole thing, but most of you, I hope, will have at least a passing familiarity with the story, even if it's just from Andrew Lloyd Webber's Joseph and the Amazing Technicolor Dreamcoat. And I've got nothing against that show, by the way. My daughter can name all 12 tribes of Israel because of Joseph, so go Andrew Lloyd Webber. Joseph's brothers all hate him because he's the favorite. And so they, sl- they sell him into slavery in Egypt and go back home and tell their father that he's been murdered. Now, years later, believe me, I'm aware of how much I'm skipping here. Years later, yada, 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 there's a famine in the land and the brothers come to Egypt looking for help. And Joseph is by this time the Pharaoh's right hand man in charge of pretty much everything. He's certainly in charge of deciding who gets help in a time of famine and could very easily have these evil brothers of his killed. And yet, what happens? If love flowed in the way that we just described it, from you to your neighbor, and then unlocking a path up to God, if love flowed that way, then Joseph's brothers would be done for. And of course, that's why they're terrified when they recognize Joseph. That's exactly the way they think it works. They didn't love their neighbor, their own brother. And so all they expect in return is retribution, revenge. And yet, listen to Joseph. I am your brother, Joseph, who you sold into Egypt. And now do not be distressed or angry with yourselves because you sold me here. For God sent me before you to preserve life. For the famine has been in the land these two years. There are five more years in which there will be neither plowing nor harvest. God sent me before you. To preserve for you a remnant on earth. To keep alive for you many survivors. 
So it was not you who sent me here, but God. The paradigm of love from you to your neighbor and then up to God is totally backwards. This is what Joseph is saying to his brothers. He basically tells them, this story didn't start with you. It started with God. Love flows down. This is what we were talking about last week, right? Grace flows downhill. God loves you and sent Jesus Christ to live for you, to die for you, to be raised again for you. In Christ, you are a new creation. You have a new identity in Christ. This week, one of you sent me a wonderful and true list, complete with biblical citations of new names we have in Christ, new things that we are called on account of Christ, and just some of them, chosen, reconciled, redeemed, freed, forgiven, cleansed, holy, blameless, sealed, justified, adopted, and my favorite, made complete. This is who you are now. Not because of how you have loved, but because of how you have been loved. You have been made complete. This is from Colossians 2, 9 and 10. In him, all the fullness of deity dwells in bodily form. And in him, you have been made complete. So, that y-axis, that vertical relationship between you and God, it is secure in Christ. Rock solid, immovable. You have been made complete. And the result of that completion is that now love can flow down from God. And out along that x-axis from you to your neighbor. And because one of your new names in Christ is made complete, guess what? You're actually not looking to see what you can get back from your neighbor. You have been made complete. The love of God poured down into you in Christ. You actually can love without wondering what you're going to get in return. And so this incredibly radical love that Jesus describes can actually exist, does actually exist, begins to bloom even in us. This happens. Love your enemies. Do good to those who hate you. Bless those who curse you. Pray for those who abuse you. This happens because you have been made complete by the love of Christ. We love because he first loved us. You love because he first loved you. And boy, did he love you. In a little while, we're going to 
close the service with a song that I know I've mentioned before, but I just want to read you a few lines to describe the kind of love that's flowing down on us, the love that's filling us up, the love that is making us complete. Listen to these words by Samuel Gandhi from his song, His Be the Victor's Name, which we're going to sing at the end of our service this morning. His be the victor's name who fought the fight alone. Triumphant saints, no honor claimed. Their conquest was his own. By weakness and defeat, he won the glorious crown. Trod all his foes beneath his feet by being trodden down. He hell in hell laid low, made sin, he sin overthrew, bowed to the grave, destroyed it so, and death by dying slew. Bless, bless the conqueror slain, slain by divine decree, who lived, who died, who lives again. For thee, my soul, for thee. What though the vile accuser roar of sins that I have done, I know them well, and thousands more. My God, he knoweth none. On account of Christ, your God does not know your sins. On account of Christ, you are complete. Amen.